All right, so last week, Mark shared with us about Christian unity and maturity. And it's a challenging subject because unity and maturity go together like peanut butter and jelly, right? Like bacon and everything. (laughs) Unity and, if you know, you know. Unity and maturity are paramount for us. And often throughout the week, your Christian maturity and even just your physical maturity, right? Emotional maturity gets tested. Tomorrow morning, or even now during church, you're being tested. There's this maturity that has to take place. And really, uh, Psalms 133 talks about how God blesses unity. So I just really see how as, as we walk in unity as a church, God blesses it. Nevertheless, Paul is going to build upon that this week. So Paul um, this week tells believers how we are to live out our new identity with Christ because um, our identity with Christ is different from the world and our identity with Christ is different from our past. Do you guys recognize that, those who've been serving Christ for a while? Your identity, your life with him is now different than the world's, and it's different from your past. Anyone recognize how you're different today? I hope we recognize that. We better recognize that change. It doesn't mean that there's not a struggle. I'm not saying when you gave your life to Christ, you became perfect. But our lives should look different. For example, when we see police officers, when we see firemen or nurses or doctors, we can recognize their profession by their distinct uniforms. And when they put on that uniform, they are given a unique set of responsibilities. Likewise, as believers, when we repented and put our faith in Jesus, we put on something new. We put on Christ, and that means we receive a new spiritual identity, resulting in us putting off the old, corrupt self. So in today's study, we will look at how we are supposed to live this new identity. That's important for us, right? How am I supposed to walk out this life with Christ? So if you have your Bibles, please turn to Ephesians 4, starting in verse 17. Here we go. So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, and the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. So what's interesting about this, as I've been studying the past couple weeks, as soon as Paul begins to tell the Ephesians how to live, What does he tell them? He tells them that they are futile in their thinking. 
And some of you might not think that the way that we think really matters, but the Bible has much to say about how we think. Isn't that where the battle is in most of our day, in our mind? Someone passes you and maybe they don't smell good, right? Maybe you're sitting next to someone who doesn't smell good. And there's these, this temptation for you to not only think about the smell, but then project on them or accuse them or whatever of why they don't smell good. Or you have an annoying friend at work. Whatever may happen in your mind, the battle is often there. I just wanted to take us through a few scriptures about what the Bible says about the mind. Proverbs 23, verse 7. For as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. Eat and drink, saith he to thee, but his heart is not with thee. As a man thinketh, so is he. The King James was the main version that said it that way. NIV said it different. But as you and I think, so are we. What do you think about throughout your day? What is your mind possessed by? Do you think about retirement? Do you think about money? Do you think about relationships? Do you think about sports? Do you lust? Do you covet? As you think, so you are. Romans 12, 2. Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So Romans is telling us to be transformed by the renewing of our thinking, by the renewing of our mind. Colossians 3.2, set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. So the way that we think matters. Did you guys think that, do you guys throughout your day think that the way that you're thinking about things really matters that much? Romans 8, 5 and 6, for those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Are you guys getting it yet? The things that we think about. Paul is saying that you must no longer live as the Gentiles did. Why? Because their minds, um, in, their, in the futility of their thinking. I even have a few more for you. I really want to um, hit this point about our thinking. First Peter 1.13, therefore prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Set your hope completely on the grace to, on, on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So what I was trying to do this morning in encouraging you guys about competition is to what? Uh, prepare your minds for action. 
See, we have to think about taking steps for Christ. Because if you think just one day you're just, just out of your heart is going to overflow preaching the gospel, it's not going to happen. Um, I remember growing up playing baseball. And while playing baseball, I played shortstop. And while I played shortstop, there was a lot of opportunities to make plays, right? So when my dad would be the coach or other coaches that I had, what they would often say is if there's a runner on first and second or first and third, right, and there's one out and you get the ball, what are you going to do? Well, then you have to be able to think about those things in advance because if you just get the ball hit to you, what are you going to do? You're probably just going to throw it to first. But if there's a runner on first and third and you mindlessly just take the ball and throw it to first, then your thir- the guy on third is probably going to run home, right, if you're mindlessly doing that. So maybe what you want to do, if, if you get the ball clean and your other players are good, you can throw it to second and you can turn a double play, right? Out, now you're up to bat. Or if, you're not, if you don't have a good second baseman who's ready, you receive the ball, you look off the runner going home, right? Hold him, hold him, hold him, and then you throw it to first, you take the out, right? Now you have two outs, runner on second, plays at first, you catch it, whatever, right? So there's plays that you have to be able to think about. What Peter's telling us is to prepare your minds for action. Prepare yourself, think about it in advance. The battle's in here. 2 Timothy 2.7, consider what I say. For the Lord will give you understanding in everything. So consider what I say. Think about what I say. And then the last one, right? 2 Corinthians 10.5. We destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. There's more, right? There's more scriptures about how we think. But how we think matters. What we think about matters. And I would say this, many or most of the struggles that we face as Christians come about because we have surrendered to the battle in the mind. We don't have as much peace or comfort or joy or happiness or power because we have handed ourselves over in our mind. Some don't think that the battle in the mind is really important because some think that the battle in the mind doesn't affect anyone, does it? If all I do is think about it, who's it affecting? It's not affecting the world. Well, it's affecting you. Some might even think that we can think as much as we want as long as we don't take action. Now, if you've read the Sermon on the Mount, you understand that that is not the case because Jesus says, you've heard it said that anyone who um, commits adultery has sinned, right? But then Jesus said, but I say anyone who looks after a woman with lust has committed adultery. So Jesus takes it from the action to the thought. The way that we think matters as believers. He is saying that someone with, uh, so what Paul is saying is the way that we think can be overlooked. Don't overlook the way that you think. 
He's saying that someone with a futile mind and futile thoughts, these people are empty of the things of God. Better stated, if our thoughts are not informed by the truth of God, then futility or uselessness will show up in our lives. And maybe some of us in here have been wondering why we just haven't had that connection with God. And maybe some of us here have not had that connection with God because all we ever think about are futile things. According to Scripture, according to this Scripture, that if all we do is think about futile things, it will lead to this being darkened in our understanding, separated from the life of God because of ignorance and a hardened heart, lost sensitivity, given over to sensuality, indulging in every kind of impurity, and we will be full of greed. I don't want any of those things in my life because when I've experienced those things, I've felt so empty and lost lost. My life has felt purposeless. So what's clear is we must fight the battle in the mind and align our thoughts with God's word. So this is a basic principle for a new creation. That's what Paul's getting at. Fight the battle in the mind as a new creation. So how do we live as a new creation, right? Living as a new creation involves putting off the old self. So let's continue. Verse 20. That, however, is not the way of life you learned. When you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires to be made new in the attitude of your minds. We see it again right here, right? The way that you think. And to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So Paul recognizes the conflict that we as believers have, right? Though we are saved by grace, there is still a battle going on inside of us. Does anyone recognize that battle? Does anyone in here have a battle going on inside of you today? Here's what I want to say. Those who didn't raise your hand, your battle's so bad, you're lying to yourself. <laughs> How many today have a battle that's going on inside of them? I have a battle going on inside of me. And as Mark Miller shared this morning with some people, that battle is normal. That's the normal walk with Christ. Your battle is normal. Now here's the encouragement is um, don't try to live that battle by yourself, right? Don't just think that you can. We still have to confess uh, to each other to be healed. We have to confess to God to be forgiven, right? There's still that venting of these things. But it's normal for us to have this old and new um, challenging each other. We live in a fallen world, and we still have a fallen nature. Why? Because sanctification hasn't 
been completed yet. And Paul actually himself talks about this battle that he um, himself experienced. He talks about this frustration that he, he has about not being fully sanctified yet. And we, and we see this in Romans 7, 14 through 25. I'm going to read it. So the, and I'm certainly going to mess this one up. I think you might understand why. But, um, so the trouble is not with the law, for it is spiritual and good. The trouble is with me, for I am all too human, a slave to sin. I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. But if I know that what I am doing is wrong, that shows that I agree that the law is good. So I'm not the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. And I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. Anyone feel that way today? Anyone ever had a season where you're like, I want to do what's right, I just can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I am not really the one doing it. It is sin living in me that does it. I have discovered this principle of life, that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart, but there is another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. You see how it is. In my mind, I really want to obey God's law. But because of my sinful nature, I am a slave to sin. I do the things I want, or I don't do the things I want to do, and the things I want to do, or the things I don't want to do, I do. Don't we do that a lot in our walk? God, I just, I want to read my Bible today. I just, I want to read my Bible today. I want to spend 15 minutes in worship songs. I want to take notes as I journal. I want to do that. But mowing the grass sounds better. God, I want to share your good news. I want to go to small group. I want to join a small group. But I'm just, I wanted to go out to eat instead. My schedule's so busy that all I could do to feed the family was go out to eat. God, I want to go to church on Sunday mornings. But, 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 right? There's all these things that we want to do. I want to avoid this sin, but and what Paul is talking about is just this war that's raged in our spirit about us wanting to do good, but doing what's not good. Now, I encourage you to go read the rest of Romans um, 7 and 8, right? talks about how big God is and his love and um, how God plans to set us free. 
but there is this war that's going on. But right in between the old and the new, right? Right in between of putting off here in Ephesians, putting off the old self and walking into the new self, Paul says something again. We already read it. Verse 23, to be made new in the attitudes of your minds. He's re-emphasizing again the way that we think is going to help us step into the new thing. So how do I experience renewal in my mind and strength? Physically, I eat nourishing foods to build a strong body, right? If all I ate each day was Sour Patch Kids, my body would look different. <laughs> maybe it'd look really sickly, or maybe it'd look bigger, I don't know. But I do know that when I eat a lot of Sour Patch Kids, my stomach gets sick. I only get a few though, Macy really loves Sour Patch Kids. That's her favorite candy. So physically, I eat foods to nourish my body. Spiritually, I'm renewed by immersing myself in God's word, communing with him, and fellowshipping with other believers. So I have to renew my mind in that. I have to renew my mind in God's word and spending time with him. I have to renew my mind in fellowshipping with you guys. Strong Christians are characterized by their love for the Bible and their enjoyment of fellowship with other believers. Their enjoyment of fellowship with other believers. There's been seasons um, in times past where you just don't enjoy to be around church people. Anyone ever been there? We've been there, right? And you just don't enjoy it at all. And you do it, but it's empty. And for us to grow, we have to walk in unity and maturity, as we learned last week, with other believers. We have to fellowship and enjoy it with other believers. Now, this new lifestyle that God, through Paul, is calling the Ephesians to live out will cause them to replace sinful habits with righteous and holy habits. And this is what we don't hear a lot of today. Um, yeah, we don't hear a lot of this today uh, within Christian culture, right? That God wants us to live, um, to pursue holiness and righteousness. We don't hear a lot of that sin has consequences. We don't hear that we have to replace our old way of life with a new way of life. A lot of what we hear from Christian culture now is um, psychology from the pulpit. The new you, right? And I'm not bashing, there's no preacher in my mind. I just know sermons that I've listened to over the past five years and especially after COVID. It's just a lot about the new, better you, right? And prosperity to some degree within the Christian walk. Prosperity not necessarily talking about finances, but maybe even just more about having a happy life and good life all the time. But we don't hear a lot about replacing 
the old in living into the new. So the old versus the new. The list that Paul is going to give isn't inexhaustive, right? Or exhaustive. It's not the complete list. It's more likely the list that we're getting ready to go over is contextually um, significant to those who are in um, the Ephesian church. But it's also applicable to you and I. So this list, though it wasn't written to you and I, I think it's a good place for you and I to start. But before we look at these, I want to note a few things. This list is a is practical and relational. A life with Christ will impact the way that we interact with our community. Our sin affects others negatively, and our righteousness blesses others positively. This list that Paul gives will first give a negative, and then it will give a positive. As we grow in holiness, it's not just about saying no to sin. It's more about saying yes to God. Amen? And then finally, this list will give a strong theological reason why it's important to step into the new. It's important for you and I to step into these new things. So the first thing that Paul tells us to stop doing, from the old to the new, is to stop lying and start telling the truth. Now, we should all feel that at certain levels, right? Because maybe you're just not. We all lie. We're all liars. And the best place for us to start is just to acknowledge it. We all lie. Maybe someone just asked you how you're doing, and you lied. Very baseline. How are you doing? Oh, I'm great. Liar. <laughs> Maybe the better answer is this. Hey, Shonda, I don't have time to talk about it. Thanks for asking. Maybe we can get together for coffee. Or maybe you just don't really want to talk to her. It's not something I want to get into. We don't have that relationship. But we're all liars. We've all lied. Verse 25. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. For we are all members of one body. Now, why is Paul telling us to stop lying? Because God hates lying. Many of you are familiar with the scripture, Proverbs 6, uh, 16. It's not through 29, it's just through 19. That was a typo on my part. Okay, it's not up there, good. Therefore, or sorry, there are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. So twice within these few verses, lying's mentioned in here. 
He mentions lying twice within this, a lying tongue and a false witness who pours out lies. Plain and simple, when we lie, we follow Satan. Paul is telling us that we have to get rid of this. Get rid of this falsehood in our lives. John 8, 44. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. When we lie, who are we following? Who's the father of lies? Satan. So when we tell what we think are these white little lies or these little fibs, we're not walking in the new being. We're walking in the ways of Satan. And th this one's free, and some of you have heard me say this before. Jesus is the redeemer. Jesus brings life. Jesus is the creator. Satan is the accuser. So when we start this in accusing people of things that may or may not be true, who, what are we doing? We're following the devil. I've heard, one say, I've heard someone say this. When we accuse people, we're actually participating in witchcraft. Why? Because Satan is the accuser. And since Satan is the accuser, what he does is demonic, obviously. So when we do those things, we are participating in things of demons. So we must stop lying. We must speak truthfully to our neighbors. Why? Because we are all members of one body. The next thing that Paul tells us is to get rid of unrighteous anger and replace it with righteous anger. Verse 26, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. This is an interesting thing for me because many people, myself included, I've justified my anger and cognitive dissonance has come in to make me feel like I'm justified in it because I want to feel a certain way. So then what do I say? I'm angry, but this is righteous anger. I don't know how much righteous anger I'm really capable of. Honestly, I think what I do is I try to find ways so that I can justify myself. But how easy is it for our old self to, to, our old self to dwell and harbor in anger? creating bitterness and hatred and division. But our new self is called to resolve this issue. We do this. When we do this, we do it by three ways, according to Paul. Paul says this, do not sin. This means when things don't go our way, we don't throw a fit, we don't seek revenge. 
and we don't cross biblical boundaries. So when you get frustrated, don't sin. Don't throw a fit. Don't seek revenge. Don't cross biblical boundaries. Paul then continues to say, Paul says, don't let the sun go down while you are still angry. Now, does that mean you've had a disagreement with someone and then it's just like, oh, well, we have to work this out before the sun goes down? Or what about if, what if the sun was already down? Then what do I do? Does that... That's what the scripture's saying. Just be smart about it. Get mad when it's dark so that you can be angry longer. <laughs> that's bad preaching. Because that's not what it means. <laughs> yeah, Macy, don't say anything to me because just wait until the sun's about to go down. <laughs> and I'd rather have 24 hours with this. Don't let the sun go down. What it's really saying is don't let this fester in your heart. Deal with it quickly. Don't sweep it under the rug. Now, for me, what makes it uh, easier is those who've been forgiven much, forgive much, right? Those who've received grace much, give grace much. And for me, what um, makes it easier for me is when someone sins against me or creates an issue with me, I don't look at their shortcomings, I look at mine. And I say, you know what, how can I hold this against them when God freely forgave me? How can I fester this? How can I fester this but not expect God to be festering my sin? God freely forgave you and I. Jesus went to the cross for you and I. He lowered himself. He became fully man and died a death for you and I that we would never die for anyone. So it's easier for me not to fester and to be angry when I just say, God, you set the example. I wish that this person didn't do it. And it really hurts me inside. And I am frustrated. And it's not completely dealt with. But for me not to fester things and for me to have the ability to go to sleep at night, it usually means I just look to him. Finally, Paul says this, don't give the devil a foothold. Pursue forgiveness and reconciliation quickly. The longer you sit with your anger, the devil will use it to divide and devour you and your church. Just deal with things. Talk it out with people. Seek to understand them, not prove your point. Agree to love God together and move on. Amen? Righteous anger is anger that moves to see um, the world changed for good. That's what righteous anger is. It's a deep frustration with the world and sin. Righteous anger propels you to obey God and to make disciples. And that's where I think we fall short with righteous anger. I think we use righteous anger as an excuse to be mad. And here's why. 
righteous anger propels you to obey God and to make disciples. Many of us are righteously angered about where America's headed, where we're heading, where the government's headed, the officials that are elected, right? Many are frustrated. If we would just get this official, well, if we just think that if we just got an official or this person that we wanted, that the world would be a better place, we're also believing a lie. But we get so angry and we get mad about it and we post about it and we talk about it at our small groups or our peer groups or breakfast or lunch or dinner or on the phone with people. We just talk about government. And we get so angry and we get so mad, right? Anyone been angry or mad about politics the past eight years, 20 years, 30 years, six months, two days? We're going to test your anger now. Let's talk about the border real quick. <laughs> Let's talk about my border politics. Do you want to here, cue up my border politics presentation? You always got to be ready, in season and out of season. <laughs> Some of you already are just gone. You, all you can think about is now your frustration with the border. See ya. I'm angry at a lot of polit politics within 2024. That's happening in America today. And my tendency can be to justify myself and the way that I share my politics with other people, often in private, in anger, because I say, God, if these things were right, then people would be in a better place. And maybe that's true. But righteous anger propels you to obey God and to make disciples. So when I just justify myself to talk poorly about politicians, which God still created these people, right? God still loves these people. You realize that? God still hopes that these people who are in political positions, who are making horrible, demonic decisions for our nation, he still hopes that they will repent of their sins and find them as Lord and Savior and that they would be with him forever. But what we do is we think that we're righteously anger, angry enough or that we're pure enough to be angry enough that then we can talk bad about these people and then after we talk bad about them, just justify our gossip and our poor, our poor decisions to say we're righteously angry. If we're righteously angry, guess what we do? We pray. We make disciples. We obey God in everything that he's doing. Amen? So get rid of your anger, Paul's telling us. So replace your unrighteous anger with righteous anger. And what righteous anger does means when you're unsatisfied with a situation, you pray about it, you get involved with it, and then you go to bed at peace. The next point, rather than stealing, work hard and be generous. Verse 28, anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. We were created to work. 
In the beginning of time, Adam and Eve were in the garden and they were working. You and I were created for it. Work is actually a gift from God. Jesus worked, right? He was a carpenter. Paul worked. He was a tent maker. Working is a gift. Yet in Paul's time and now, people steal. Now, stealing isn't always what you think, right? Obviously, stealing is when you take something that isn't yours without asking or earning it. Many of us or all of us have probably stole something. A pen from our teacher because we forgot to give it back. Even in innocence, right? Or we've stolen worse. We've stolen a few dollars. We saw some, someone drop a 20 and we kept it because it's like, well, it must be my favorite blessed day. <laughs> Won't he do it? Maybe we've stolen from that. And there's even people who have stolen worse. But stealing is also when you cheat your employer. You have a 15-minute break, but you took 25, right? You have a 30-minute break, but you took an hour. Stealing is also when you cheat the government for assistance, right? I know during COVID, there was a lot of people who filed unemployment. A lot of people ended up uh, getting charges for having multiple unemployment claims for getting all their money so that they didn't have to do anything. And then the angry part of me is like, you are smart enough to cheat the government, but you're not smart enough to get a job? Can I get a witness? <laughs> Preach. <laughs> if you could pull up my government assistance uh, <laughs> slide, please. The list could go on about how we steal and how we cheat people. What Paul is saying is quit trying to get by with, with stealing. Rather, do what you have been created for and work. For me, there's nothing like just a hard day of work. Um, one of the things that I love and I um, don't like about my job is sometimes there's just nothing physical about it. The most physical thing um, about my job is, this will sound funny, typing on my computer and drinking my coffee. <laughs> Walking to the office, unlocking the door. Now, emotionally and spiritually, there's a lot to it, right? But that's why I love like work days here or mowing grass or running or riding my bike. It's like, I need physical. I was created. We were created to work. You were created to work. So let's not steal from that. What Paul is saying is quit trying to just get by. And then he, he says, look, when you work hard and you receive an income, what are you supposed to do with it? That you may share with those in need. So what Paul says is work hard, don't steal, and then, guess what? Be generous with your income. And this, today's message is biblical. And it's not me stepping on toes. We're, we're going through a book of the Bible, right? 
So it's not as if I'm picking sermons that I want you guys to hear. We're just going verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And this is hard for me too, right? So I'm supposed to work, and then what am I supposed to do? Be generous with my income. Work and then be generous is what Paul's telling us here. Rather than stealing, work hard and be generous. In American culture, in our education system, it's not taught to work hard and then be generous. It's, um, I don't even know if working hard within the education system is taught, maybe I'm wrong. Well, it is, no it is. Work hard on your homework. So work hard on your homework, show up to school, and then do whatever you can to make a lot of money and live the life that you want to live. Save it. Put it into this kind of fund or that kind of fund. Work hard, do this with your money. But what the Bible tells us is what? Multiple places in the Bible, not only here, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, right? Give God your first fruits. And now Paul is reiterating that same thing. Work hard and then be generous. There are three things that you can work for. The first thing is you can work to steal, that we noted. The second thing, you can work for yourself. The third thing, you can work to be generous as you work for God. Of those three ways, what's most biblical? According to today's scripture, we work to be generous. We work to be generous people. And what Paul wants us to do is say, rather than stealing, work hard and be generous. Zacchaeus was a tax collector uh, that took from people his whole career. Zacchaeus was extremely wealthy. But then one day, as you guys are uh, familiar with, Zacchaeus met Jesus. And after he met Jesus, what changed in his life? He became a generous person. Luke 19, 8. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Zacchaeus meets Jesus then he becomes extremely generous. Paul continues, rather than talking bad about people, build them up. Verse 29, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building up others according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Plain and simple, unwholesome talk comes from an unwholesome heart. Out of the mouth overflows the heart. It's so easy to talk bad about people, right? And you know what's funny is... Just this cycle of we, we can talk so poorly about people and then we hear that someone's 
talking bad about us, and then we're ready to fight. Right? And it's like, well, I can talk bad about you, but you can't talk bad about me. Anyone been there? I'm so offended. So then guess what I do? You won't believe, you won't believe what he was talking about. What gave him the audacity to talk about me, right? Can you believe her? But yet, here's even how more messed up it is. We recognize that we're sinners and we fall short. So all in this cycle, we talk bad about people. We feel inadequate. We want God's love. Now we're mad at people for talking bad about us. And it's just thrown us into this whole cycle that we don't even know what's up. What Paul says is to speak well about others. Plain and simple, unwholesome talk comes from an unwholesome heart. And an unwholesome heart is where lying, gossip, unkind speech, slander, and poor language all come out of. Yet what is scary is this, is Matthew 12, 36 says this, but I tell you that everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word that they have spoken. You hear that? But I tell you that everyone, everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. Be slow to speak. Amen? Slow to speak. Every empty word. Sometimes it's easy just with groupthink or group conversation or peer pressure to just join in because you're trying to find your fit. You're trying to find your um, friends. You just want things to go smoothly that day, so you just participate in it. You say a bad word. You talk about Sharon or Karen or Mike. Anyone in here mad at a mic? Kathy, you don't count. <laughs> She's at peace with Mike, amen. Anyone in here mad at a Joey? Because that's not me, I'm Joseph. Every word, every word that comes out of our mouth, every empty word will face judgment one day. Please hear that today, amen? Paul says to speak well out of our mouth, to encourage people, to build people up. But Paul doesn't stop there. He then said, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. This is Paul warning us that everything that he has mentioned so far grieves the Holy Spirit. Stealing, talking bad, right? cheating, living unrighteously. All these things grieve God's heart. So as we grieve the Holy Spirit, it reveals that we are following ourselves and not him. So we must be sensitive to the one who sealed us for the day of redemption. That's what Paul's telling us here. Be sensitive. You're sealed 
You're marked. You're going to heaven. You're going to be with him one day. So don't grieve that person who saved you from hell. Be sensitive to him. Follow him. And the final uh, section. Rather than being bitter, be kind and forgiving. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. This is a big one. Paul doesn't say, um, yep, essentially, he makes it simple, right? Forgive people. Don't be bitter. So today, get rid of bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice. And instead of wearing those clothes, put on clothes of kindness, compassion, and forgiveness. Put on clothes of kindness, compassion, encouragement, right? How do we get rid of those clothes? We follow him. We seek him. Now that I say that, I'm thinking I missed something earlier I wanted to say, and I was looking for it. How do we put on these new clothes? We re remember that Christ forgave us. We remember what he did for us. Romans 2, 4. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness? Forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? We walk in these things when we remember what he has done for us. Titus 3, 3 to 4. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, our inability to treat people kindly with compassion and forgiveness means we lack the ability to see what God has done for us. Do you realize that? So today, Paul challenges, challenges us to walk in a new, renewed life, to think appropriately, to act appropriately, and to step out of the old and into the new. Macy and I have a bike trainer downstairs that we can work out on in the winter. And um, typically, if I go running, I don't sweat a lot. I don't know why. Um, I just don't sweat a lot, even when it's 90 degrees out. Um, put me on the bike trainer in the basement, even though it's 65 degrees down there, 
and I'm on there for about 25 minutes, and I'm disgusting. Literally, I'm so sweaty that it looks like um, I've jumped in water. It's the weirdest thing ever, and um, it's so bad I've had to get some of that, like, sweat detergent stuff. Like, Macy, I'm ruining my clothes. So these clothes are disgusting. You feel disgusting because once you're done, your body cools down and now you're like this, wet cold, sweat stinking. So what I proceed to do then is I take a shower and I take off those old clothes and I put on the new clothes. I put on the new clothes to be refreshed. What Paul is encouraging us today as um, Christians, as believers, is this, is the same way that I take off those old clothes, your work clothes when you come home, right? The clothes that you come home from a Honda, from whatever you're doing, nursing, doctoring, carpentry, cement work, whatever you do. For me, it's coffee lifting. <laughs> whatever you do, you come home and you change your clothes, or you should. What Paul wants us to do as believers is he says, look, if you're going to take this life serious, stop living in the old and start living in the new. Let's pray. Father, I pray today that we would change our spiritual clothes, that you have given us everything that we need to live into who you want us to be. Father, I even pray the sections that convicted us that we would repent of those things, and that we would be transformed by the renewing of our mind, Father. That we would think about heavenly things, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is holy, whatever is righteous, Father. Whatever is heavenly, we would think about those things throughout our day. That we would recognize that as we think, so are we. Father, give us the strength to uh, be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Father, even as Romans uh, 13 tells us to rather clothe ourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ than to think about how to gratify the desires of our sinful nature. Father, may we seek first the kingdom of God and your righteousness. May we not beat ourselves up when we fail, but may we uh, walk in your grace and your empowerment. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you guys are dismissed. <laughs>